0: With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at
1: kizik.com/socks.
2: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a new show for and about people who think big. Our guest on this week's show is Preet Bharara. Preet served as US Attorney for the Southern District of New York until he was fired by President Donald Trump. His prosecutions were the inspiration behind the hit TV shows Billions and The Americans. And his new book, Doing Justice, is an insider's account of criminal justice in America that is absolutely as gripping as those shows. He sat down with LBC presenter Matthew Stadlin to tell us more about his extraordinary career.
0: Preet, you've got a reassuringly firm handshake. (laughs) How brave did you have to be in taking on the mob?
1: Uh, You know, you've just got to be focused on doing the right thing. You have to be focused on uh, the law, and you don't focus on... Threats to you—you you don't focus on threats to the rule of law—and that firm handshake, as I told you before we started taping, came long before I was a prosecutor of the mob or anyone else. Maybe that's one of the reasons you get the job—that they evaluate you based on the firm. Ha- Your handshake, not bad either, by by the way.
0: Thank you. I think I was anticipating a firm handshake. <laughs> <laughs> How scary though were those threats?
1: You know, they happen from time to time. I, I didn't really have any particular threats when I was the actual United States Attorney and led the office. Every once in a while, there was a suggestion that someone. Uh, Wanted to do something bad because you don't make so many friends when you prosecute folks, whether it's, you know, gangs or the mafia or terrorists. You know, separate from, you know, threats, I'm not welcome in various parts of the world. I've been banned from Russia by Vladimir Putin. Uh, President Erdogan of Turkey directly tried to fire me through Vice President Biden. For a period of time, it might have been true that in India, the country of my birth, they weren't too thrilled with me based on some prosecutions we brought. But that's part of the job, and you have to suck it up.
0: And your own president, President Trump, fired you.
1: He did. you know. But people should realize he didn't have any obligation to keep me on. I had been appointed by President Obama and confirmed by the Senate. He did decide to keep me on in a, in a meeting on the, on the 26th floor of Trump Tower.
0: While he was president-elect.
1: While he was president-elect. It was very unusual. He asked me to stay even before he uh, figured out who his secretary of state was going to be. And I'm not a cabinet-level position, so he clearly had some interest in that. Spot, so he didn't have to have me say he changed his mind for reasons that are not clear to me. And here I am, a podcaster like you.
0: <laughs> Give British listeners a sense, if you would, what was the scope of your powers when you were U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New
1: York? Uh, they're pretty broad. You know, the office is a large one, uh, about 225 assistant U.S. attorneys who bring federal federal criminal cases, also defend civil cases we did gang prosecutions cyber prosecutions terrorism prosecutions wall street prosecutions civil rights prosecutions uh, and our ambit covered basically you know everywhere because you know the the law has to have a long arm when crime goes global someone once made the mistake of asking me the question sort of like you did and said remind me again what your jurisdiction is and i said are you familiar with earth <laughs> so some there's some truth to that there's some truth to that and it doesn't mean i don't mean it to sound overindulgent but you know, on, on an average year, one of my favorite statistics from my time in office was, in an average year, prosecutors from my office visited forty-five to forty-nine countries around the world, with whom they had developed relationships. Whether it was Eastern Europe, or South America, uh, or Western Africa, or parts of Asia, we brought cybercrime prosecutions that sometimes involved coordinated law enforcement efforts in up to nineteen countries at a single pop. We we prosecuted. The reason I'm banned from Russia is the, the successful prosecution of a, um, a very high-profile arms dealer named Victor Boot, who you know people were upset in Russia that we prosecuted him and convicted him, and he was taken into custody in Thailand through a sting operation. So when you're talking about international terrorism or international cybercrime or even international financial fraud, we have the ability through our relationships with law enforcement officials and also FBI offices throughout the world to bring those people to justice.
0: How do you think American citizens would react to being treated in a similar way by foreign jurisdictions, by foreign prosecutors?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, we have, uh, by invitation of these countries, relationships with them. And our most successful prosecutions occur because there are extradition treaties with respect to some of these countries. You know, the very famous Muslim cleric here, Abu Hamza, fought extradition to the United States, to my office, essentially, for material support of terrorism. That happened over a period of time. There are people who get charged in the United States too. And through the, you know, the ordinary process, they can be extradited as well. So it's not the case that America only protects its own and charges people in other countries. It's done through a you know, consensus uh, approach.
0: How much truth do you think there is, Preet, in this suggestion that it is almost impossible, if not impossible, to commit large-scale financial fraud anywhere in the world without falling foul of the U.S. jurisdiction?
1: No, I I don't think that's necessarily true. There there have been cases involving the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which tries to get at corporate bribery, uh, that have not fared well because there's not a sufficient nexus to the United States.
0: Although if it touches dollars, is is there not truth in that? That if fraud touches dollars, that involves the American, It can be.
1: In a lot of circumstances, all you require is something very little. Uh, And I think American prosecutors need to be careful, and I was cognizant of this, There's lots of things to do and lots of things you don't have time to get to and it's a little bit of a zero-sum game because you have limited resources. And there were cases that we declined and maybe other offices did them. If there was not a sufficient nexus to harm in the United States, my view was generally speaking we should be spending our time on local violent crime and local uh, financial crime, not worrying about something happening maybe in the Czech Republic that didn't really affect us too much.
0: Amongst the opening statements, opening thoughts in your book. And it's brilliantly written this book. Thank you. Is is the idea that this is an alarming moment for America. You say that many believe that to be the case and you don't disagree. How worried should we be around the world for what's going on in your country?
1: Well, Americans are worried. Um and I think there's good reason to be. They shouldn't not be uh you know jumping off buildings, but they need to be concerned. Democracy is fragile. Democratic institutions are fragile. And norms that sustain those institutions are even more fragile. And when you have someone who becomes president of the United States, who's constantly attacking certain institutions, including the free press, including his own FBI, including his own intelligence community, favoring the word of Vladimir Putin over the findings of his own intelligence community, and also saying all sorts of things about the press, you know, that makes you—and about the judiciary. You know, he attacks particular judges by name, which is an astonishing thing that we haven't seen before— I think also institutions have been holding up rather well. The judiciary is doing its job in the United States. The federal judiciary, they all have life tenure. And so they cannot be removed, even if they get attacked on Twitter by an angry president who has the largest megaphone in the world. And the press has the protection of in the the U.S., the First Amendment, which is very, very strong. And I think the press have stepped up to the moment. So I think certain institutions are strong, but you have to worry when you have people who are close to a president who start to say things like, there are alternative facts, or like his lawyer Rudy Giuliani said, truth isn't truth. And this effort, you know, people have often said that the the opposite of truth is not falsity, it's confusion. And this idea of sowing confusion all the time about things that that must be true, whether it's about climate change or anything else, is the thing you have to worry about. So in summary,
0: how robust do you think the rule of law is in America? And do you think it hasn't come under the sort of strain that it might have done during the Trump presidency as a result of your belief that he's rather incompetent.
1: So that's an observation that many people have made with respect to even my own firing. It was hard to know if it was nefarious or just a result of incompetence. When the president decided, based on campaign promises, that he wanted to ban all Muslims from the country, it's taken a long time and multiple attempts at trying to carve out something that's more narrow and, and legal, in part because there's some incompetence in how they interpret the law and try to put forward what Donald Trump tries to do. I don't think it's enough to rely on someone's incompetence for not being able to get something done. Another thing, by the way, that maybe accounts for a little bit of faith in the rule of law in some quarters, even within the Trump administration, has been set forth at great length in Robert Mueller, the special counsel's report, which recites over and over and over again, all sorts of instances where the president of the United States gave some order or some command or some direction for someone in the administration to take some action that might have really undermined the rule of law, and they refused. So there's this famous incident that people may not be familiar with, where the president asked his counsel, the White House counsel, which is a very significant position in the White House, could you get the deputy attorney general to fire Robert Mueller? And the deputy attorney general never got the chance to do that because the White House counsel, Don McGahn, refused to carry out the order. There's a astonishing story in the report that describes the White House counsel having heard this direction from his own president, decided to pack up his things, prepare a letter of resignation, realized maybe I will leave public service. Ultimately, that did not happen because the president uh, was just ignored. And, in, and there's many examples of that. So sometimes what, what is required for the rule of law to prevail and for norms not to be fully trampled is for decent people to decide, I'm not going to listen to a bad order. And you
0: say this in your book in a different context, in a more general context, that the law in itself Can only go so far. The law in itself is not enough. It requires good, decent, honest
1: citizens. Yeah, I begin the book with an excerpt from a summation of maybe the most famous criminal defense lawyer in American history, Clarence Darrow, in defending an African American in 1925, I think, in a suburb of Detroit. Not long after slavery had been abolished. Not long after. And he makes the point, you know, he made his arguments about self defense, but he also said, you know, the law has made him equal, speaking of, of blacks in America but man has not. And the last analysis is what has man done, not what has the law done. And then I think even more compellingly and movingly to me, the other thing he said, it's very important to keep in mind if you're a prosecutor or you care about democracy in, in any measure, is that no matter what laws we pass, no matter what precautions we take, unless the people we meet are kindly and decent and human and liberty loving, then there is no liberty. Because he says freedom comes from human beings rather than from laws and institutions. And so laws are important, it's important to have a good charter. It's important to have good statutes. It's important to have a good constitution. But what is equally important is that the people who are responsible for enforcing those laws, revising those laws, interpreting those laws, be good, decent, and honorable also.
0: Trump critics were pinning a lot of their hopes on the Mueller inquiry. How satisfied are you with it? Do you think it unnecessarily pulled punches? Do you think it pulled punches?
1: You know, I don't know if it pulled punches. You know, here's the problem, and one of the issues I address in the book. The role of the prosecutor is not to go get someone and to deliver someone from a presidency you don't like or a governorship you don't like. The role, the, the role of the prosecutor in America and everywhere else, for that matter, is to figure out what the truth is and then figure out what the interests of justice require, whether that is to lodge an allegation or an accusation or not. Even if there's some, some evidence to show some misconduct, the law has to be complied with and, and obliged. And so I think a lot of people, and I write in a different context in the book about how sometimes people substitute their political beliefs and views for what the law and what the facts may ultimately suggest and compel. And they will put both their hopes, depending on the perspective, uh, or their hatreds into the empty vessel of the prosecutor. So for a lot of people, Bob Mueller, whose voice you haven't heard, I happen to know he has a nice, you know, deep uh, voice, but he has not come to the camera, he has not had a press conference. And so lots and lots of people thinking not so much about the law than about what it should require but rather not liking this president, I think sort of put Bob Mueller a little bit in an impossible position and are deeply disappointed. There are arguments to be made on both sides. Did he pull punches? Did he not? In connection with the obstruction of justice section of the Mueller report, Bob Mueller sort of surprisingly said, I cannot make a decision one way or the other. And the reason for that is we have something peculiar in the U.S. and actually don't know what it's like in the U.K. It's certainly not true in Israel, where Benjamin Netanyahu is charged with a crime. But the, the prevailing current interpretation of the law in the US by the Department of Justice, cannot prosecute a sitting president. So Bob Mueller says, in a way that I think bends over backwards to be fair to the sitting president, it would be wrong for me to state that a crime was committed because we cannot charge you, and so you cannot have an opportunity to defend yourself in a court of law and clear your good name. You can't have your day in court You can't have your day in court. So I can't even say in a report that you've committed a crime. Although as I read the report, he believes there was a crime committed but he sort of twists into a pretzel not being able to say that.
0: So would you speculate, would you go a little further than you just have and speculate that Mueller might have been punchier had he felt that that Donald Trump would have had his day in court?
1: I think that's a reasonable conclusion. I think if there was not this backstop of an interpretation that you cannot charge the sitting president, based on the evidence that he put forth, based on the on the elements that he describes that the evidence meets in instance after instance... I think there's a reasonable chance of that. I think it's also possible that he decided uh, and would decide in that circumstance and did decide now that he wanted to recite all the evidence, uh, have it be available to Congress because there's a mechanism in our constitution for the impeachment of the president.
0: Let's step back from Trump and the American judicial system just for a moment and look at it more broadly. Do you think that there is a sufficient separation of powers in your system given that the appointees to the Supreme Court are political?
1: Look, separation of powers is a complicated and difficult subject, and you have to analyze it in particular circumstances. There is a degree of separation. Uh, You know, on the United States Supreme Court, there sit nine justices in America, all who have life tenure, and probably the greatest thing that insulates them from political pressure is the fact of life tenure. And you have had, over the course of time, a number of Supreme Court justices, as you say, who have been appointed by presidents of the same party who disappointed the presidents who appointed them. Um, David Souter is one, Berger is another. There, There have been a number of those. You find that happening less now because I think both Republican presidents and Democratic presidents have become very alert to the idea that they want predictability on the part of the people they put on the court. So there's a lot more attention paid to judicial philosophy, judicial ideology. And so there's more predictiveness and less surprise on the part of observers of the court. But I still think there's a separation.
0: I was going to say, though, that even in the past, when when some of these judges went rogue, politically rogue to some extent, nonetheless, that wasn't thanks to the system. That was thanks to individuals.
1: It, it, it was, but it was the system that enabled them, uh, I think, to be independent. They didn't have to worry they're going to be fired the next day. As I as I've said frequently, if you're a federal judge in the US and you piss off the president, you remain a federal judge. If you're a U.S. attorney in the U.S. and you piss off the president, you get a podcast. So it's, it's a very di- very different fates befall you.
0: Given that we're now talking about where you are in your career, would you have liked to become a judge?
1: No. And I, you know, I, we were talking about this a little bit before. I know your father was a judge. I think that the weightiest responsibility that I wanted uh, was to be a prosecutor. And I think that the judge's responsibility in one regard is something that prevented me from aspiring to the court. And that is The need to have to decide in certain cases after a conviction is had in a criminal matter, how much time to send someone to prison. What's the right amount of time? What is just? Is it 70 months? Is it 78 months? How am I supposed to know as a mere mortal the magic number of months to separate someone who's a human being from his liberty? That's a responsibility I didn't look forward to.
0: Well, you wrestled with it, though, as a prosecutor, didn't you? There's you did. A, a, but... a particular point in the book where you yeah. mentioned the moral dilemma there that you're facing. It's not so much a moral dilemma, but you're wondering whether you should press for a, a, a fixed term or whether or, or whether you should allow it to go to the judge.
1: Yeah, so I know it sounds odd to say that I, I didn't really relish the idea of figuring out what proper punishment should be, but there is a difference between the prosecutor and, and the court. The judge... Makes the decision and has final responsibility. The prosecutors, in most instances, just have the recommending authority. And there was a case that I mentioned at the, at the end of the book where there was a, a tragic case where a baby was kidnapped from the hospital at 19 days of age, not reunited with the biological parents for 23 years. And, and just imagine how horrible an event that was and how much the biological parents, who still missed, obviously, and felt deep, you know, their daughter who was kidnapped and felt deep pain. You know they went very biblical in their recommendations. They went eye for, for an, an eye. eye, a year they, for a year. You know, when they asked, you know, how long do you think the kidnapper, this woman named Ann Petway, should serve? They said, well, "We lost our daughter for 23 years. She should go to prison for 23 years." And there's there's something compelling in that eye for an eye biblical logic. That's just not how the system works. But we had to decide how to go forward in the case and what our recommendation should be because there was another victim too. That victim was the baby herself, baby Carlina, and baby Carlina, although a victim she had been raised by this woman who she understood to be her mother who turned out to be a kidnapper she did not want this kidnapper who she loved and who raised her to go to prison and she ceased being a cooperative witness at some point so it's a story about dilemmas it's a story about what justice means in different circumstances it's a story about how you weigh different considerations including the wishes of one set of victims versus the wishes of another victim versus you know what is right and just as far as retribution goes in the case.
0: i just spell out that sentencing dilemma that I was alluding to.
1: So under the statute that we charged the kidnapper with, it had an element that if you met certain thresholds, which we met in this case, you know, a kidnapping of someone across state lines below a certain age who was not a member of your family, the judge had to sentence you, if you were convicted, to 20 years in prison as a mandatory minimum sentence. No no parole and no no mercy from the 20 years We thought that was fair and just, given the seriousness of the crime. The defense lawyer said, well, we may contest it then, we may go to trial, which would have required us to put the daughter on trial uh, as a witness and probably make her relive some of the trauma that she had uh, had to deal with. And then we thought, well, maybe we can just argue to the judge, leave it to the judge, which some people think should be the case in every matter. There are differences of opinion on this. And we went around the room and one point I describe in the book. That as we voted, I took a straw vote among my my team that there were people who wanted to go more harsh and say, require 20 years, and other people who said, maybe we should just let the judge decide. And I was trying to understand what the difference was, and it didn't have anything to do with how seasoned they were or whether they're male or female. And I realized that the people who had children wanted the tougher sentence. Including you. Including me. Well, because, you know, I thought to myself, my children were fairly young at the time, and you can't help but think, what if this happened to my daughter? or my son stolen from the hospital at 19 days of age, and you get filled with a little bit of rage as well as sadness. And then one of the questions I ask in the book, like I do throughout the, the whole work, is, is it right and okay for the prosecutor to be thinking that way? Am I being hopelessly biased because I'm thinking about my own child instead of you know this third-party baby Carlina who was kidnapped? Or on the other hand, is that good because I'm being empathetic and I'm thinking with some amount of perspective as a human being who lives in the world and understands what le- le- loss is and what pain is.
0: And this is the intersection between human beings and the law, isn't it? In Absolutely. real life.
1: And it happens all the time. And you cannot do the job effectively, properly, if you don't at least acknowledge to yourself that those things happen, that those feelings happen, that those biases might arise. And they may be okay, but you have to recognize them and talk about them and talk through them with the team.
0: And in the end, with your say-so, it did go Not to trial,
1: so we uh, we ended up. uh, It took me a few days, as I said in the book. And how do you decide a dilemma like this? I said, what you do is you you take a deep breath, you go home, you hug your kids, and you sleep on it. And I did that probably for a few days. And we decided ultimately to let the kidnapper uh, defendant plead guilty to the other charge, no requirement of a twenty-year mandatory minimum. And we argued to the judge twenty years. Do you want me to tell you what the judge did? Twelve years, and twelve years. I will have to tell you that the. Biological parents were deeply disappointed. My prosecutors were disappointed, and probably I was too, but in, in the fullness of time, thinking about it, 12 years is still a long time. And the judge had to take into account, which is why I think that job is so difficult, not just the pain of the, of the girl who was kidnapped, not just the pain of the biological parents, but also sort of a wider view of some of the circumstances that led the kidnapper to do. The kidnapper and Petway obviously committed a heinous crime. But she had issues too. She had had miscarriages, apparently. She had you know, some mental health issues. And he just thought, considering everything, which is what I'm required to do, not just the point of view of one party stakeholder, that 12 years was sufficient. It's a lot of time. I don't think it was a miscarriage of justice. I might have sentenced her to a little bit more, maybe even up to 20 years. But you live and learn.
2: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala, marquee tv really is the most accessible way into culture i've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover you can try it for three months for just 99p yep three months for 99p with the code howto, just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code howto to dive into the world of the arts like never before
1: the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed
0: And to what extent, as a a famously aggressive prosecutor, have you come to understand the the balance that needs to be struck, or many believe needs to be struck, between the victim and the perpetrator, the rights of both?
1: You take them into account, but remember, you know, I teach a a law class, uh, a seminar on criminal justice at NYU Law School, and I was discussing this with my students recently. And on the one hand, you know, prosecutors and uh, the system need to be very, very, very aware of the victim and need to make sure that the victim is being treated well. You know, we passed laws recently in the United States that allow victims to have an opportunity to be made aware of the proceedings and developments in the proceedings and have an opportunity to speak at sentencing because they're important, they're an important part of the system. However, the victims don't decide. You know, you can arguably say, and I mean this with great sensitivity, the victim of the crime, or one of the victims of the crime, may be quite literally the most biased person with respect to what should happen. They don't have any distance from it. They shouldn't because they're the victim of the crime. You also have circumstances in which you have multiple victims, as we did in the in the case of baby Carlina, and they may have different points of view. You know, The largest class of victims that my office ever had to deal with were the victims of 9-11 and their families and the people who survived and the first responders. That's thousands of people. And when we were having this debate some years ago, which was the first big debate that I had to deal with when I became U.S. attorney in 2009, was should, should Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the other for people that were at Guantanamo Bay with him should they be charged in civilian court in New York or should they face justice in a military commission in Guantanamo Bay Cuba and with respect to how victims felt about that there was no monolithic response you know they were not unanimous on it there were a group of victims who felt these were acts of war my um you know my loved ones were victims of an act of war and they should have not the benefit of all these protections you have in a civilian constitutional system but a military tribunal. And then there were others who felt the opposite, who felt the way that America honors itself, and the way that we show that justice is done, and the way that we show the terrorists themselves that we're not afraid, is to have an open trial with open proceedings in federal court in the United States in Manhattan.
0: Is how you show yourself to be a, a, a proper, decent, upstanding society when it comes under the greatest strain, right?
1: Yeah, that's what I mean, that's what I believe. That's what a subset of victims believe. But the point is, when you're asking the question, how do you Calibrate the issues of the victim and the perpetrator, they're very complicated. And there are differences of of opinion, even among groups of victims.
0: Two big questions that that, are tied together, and I have to ask you, and I, I want to know the extent to which you've given this some thought, and I think you have, judging from the book. America has a penal system that can be, in my view, deeply cruel and inhumane. People go to prison for multiple life terms. People can be locked up in solitary confinement if they don't abide by whatever they're required to abide by. People could be put to death. How comfortable were you operating as a prosecutor in that environment?
1: Yeah, I was pretty comfortable, um, not in every instance. But bear in mind that we a little bit in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York were federal prosecutors. We're not local, you know, We have multiple systems. And so we had the luxury of going after typically high-profile people, the worst of the worst. We weren't dealing with people who stole a loaf of bread from a store. We were dealing with Bernie Madoff, who rightly got you know a, a symbolic sentence of 150 years in prison, about whom the judge said in the sentencing, Bernard Madoff is evil.
0: Where is hope in that though?
1: Well, you know, some people who engage in horrific behavior, like Bernie Madoff that destroyed lots and lots of people's lives, or people who we prosecuted, we once prosecuted a guy who had killed 19 people, 19 murders. I don't think there's necessarily any hope for someone like that. There are other people, who go to jail for longer shorter periods of time or even longer periods of time about whom you hope there will be rehabilitation you hope that society and the country through policies and also through attitudes will have a better response to how they get reintegrated into society i have an entire chapter on rikers island which is a hellhole of a jail a, you know a pretrial jail in new york city where i think people might be surprised that we asserted our prosecutorial authority to send to prison prison guards who trampled on the constitutional rights of inmates, including in one case, kicking an inmate to death who was not in a position to defend himself, and also then suing the city of New York, suing the correctional authority to make sure that they put more cameras, they had more safety precautions, they had better discipline, they had more training, and in fact, a court-ordered monitor to oversee the jail. So, as I say in the book, you know, prosecutors should care about prisoners in the same way that in a just society, the healthy should care about the sick, the rich should should care about the poor. It's incredibly important. It's lost in your mind sometimes, But I think the good prosecutor is always aware and cognizant of these issues, tries to make things better, tries to fight for reform, and tries to make sure that the people who are behind prison walls, because society deems it necessary, are not beyond the reach of the Constitution.
0: What do you feel you learned about the human psyche in being a prosecutor? I think, for example, of your chapter on snitches, people who turn to become state witnesses.
1: You know, So I I guess what I learned, and this is going to sound like a tautology, but it's one of my favorite things to say, and I say it throughout the book. And it seems very obvious, but people forget it all the time. And what I learned about people is that they are that they are exactly that, that everyone is a human being. The prosecutor is a human being. The judge is a human being. The defendant is a human being. The FBI agent is a human being. The jailer is a human being. And th- that seems very obvious to say, but people forget.
0: And that the defendant is more than simply the crimes that they have committed.
1: Yeah, there's a great civil rights lawyer in, in the U.S., Brian Stevenson, who says, you are, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. That applies to you and me, and it applies to somebody who's been convicted of a crime. I tell the story in the book about how we forget that people are human beings, and it's a simple thing. I don't know how it works in courts in the UK, but I remember not realizing this until far into my tenure, that a simple pleasantry that happens at the beginning of a court proceeding in a criminal case every day in hundreds of courtrooms goes something like this. The judge presiding would say, hello, Mr. Prosecutor, good morning. Hello, Ms. Defense Lawyer, good morning. And then would say for the court reporter, and I note the presence of the defendant. It's a small thing, but the whole reason everyone is there, the whole reason the prosecutor is there, the defense lawyer is there, the court uh, marshal is there, the judge is there, is because this human being has been accused of a crime and is presumed innocent and has a right to have a defense, and yet they're not even greeted with a good morning or a, or a good afternoon. I wonder, does that human being, I'll be charged with a crime, think about the system that's going to judge him when... The court itself doesn't even acknowledge with a good morning. Everyone's a human being, and we should always remember that.
0: And given that you remember that and spell it out, where do you stand on the death penalty? You say you feel comfortable having worked as a lawyer in America, and of course the death penalty isn't in every state. But where do you stand on it?
1: Yeah, so I think the death penalty has a lot of problems. I think it's not applied fairly. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest it's not applied fairly. I think there's a lot of evidence to show um, that it doesn't have a particular deterrent effect. Uh, The death penalty remains on the books in in federal law in the United States, and when I was the United States Attorney, I was committed to upholding uh, and enforcing the laws as written, but I don't know what this tells you, but in seven and a half years as U.S. Attorney, we never sought the death penalty once. Well, you tell me what it tells tells us. There was not a case that I thought that warranted the death penalty.
0: But I I would suggest that you don't really believe, you may believe in evil or evil acts, but you don't believe that any one human is evil. And therefore I ask you, again, there, may okay, <laughs> there may be a few, there may be a few, for them, you but, would be comfortable potentially no, not, no, no, to I, face I, the no, ultimate penalty.
1: No, I'm, I'm not in favor of the death penalty. I think the death penalty has lots and lots and lots of problems. And I think that America really needs to reckon with that, both because of the discriminatory way in which it's carried out, uh, and also because of the possibility of mistake. And we see a lot of that now as well. So, you know, I'm not a member of Congress, so I don't have to, I don't have to vote on the issue and I'm not a judge so I don't have to vote on the issue and when I was a prosecutor I never saw clear to seeking the death penalty. I think there are a lot of problems with it. When I say when I talk about people who I think are evil and there are some, the vast majority are just are people who made mistakes and have bad sides to them. And there are people who are walking the streets who committed you know crimes but they were never caught. And and for those people, like Bernie Madoff and the person who shot and killed, you know, nineteen people, I don't think you need to show a lot of mercy to them in terms of jail time.
0: Let me ask you this. Some years ago, I interviewed Jonathan Sumption, QC, as he was then, probably our most famous QC, our most famous advocate, now Lord Sumption of the Supreme Court. And he said something like, ultimately, the law is common sense with knobs on. Do you subscribe to that?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, common sense plays a huge role in hopefully the drafting of laws, in the decisions how to exercise discretion in connection with those laws, and then in making judgments about them. You know, we. One of the most common phrases we would use and we would train our young lawyers to use in court when they would address the jury is use your common sense. Uh, Don't leave the common sense with which you do all your your daily doings as a human being. Don't leave your common sense at the door because at the end of the day, the defense is going to have arguments that they're going to make. And if they strain credulity and you think, well, it can't possibly be true that the events occurred in the way that they're saying because they're trying to check all these boxes and get away with something your common sense really needs to be brought to bear and i think that's very wise and if more people thought about common sense both when they enact laws when they enforce them and when people are asked to render judgment on them i think we'd be in good position
0: you mentioned that my father was a judge as a barrister as a qc he gave the longest speech in english and welsh legal history 119 days <laughs> that's very long i'm going to try it's and, a lot of podcasts it's a lot of podcasts so i'm going to try and <laughs> wrap this up before i'm tempted to try and beat him I'll finish with this question. You were actually born, as you've alluded to, in India, I think in the Punjab. But yes. you arrived in the United States with your parents when you were about two years old. L- L- under, t- under two. Under two. So how do you now view your country as an immigrant under Trump?
1: So I view my country as something that's much larger than Donald Trump. It's been around longer, and it'll be around you know after he leaves office. I'm very proud to be an American. If you look at my Twitter bio, it says most of the things you need to know about me that I was... Uh, Uh, Fired by Trump, banned by Putin, Bruce Springsteen fan, proud immigrant. And I think, you know, America is a nation of immigrants. Lots of other countries are too, a lot of immigrants in the UK. And I have great confidence and faith that people of goodwill will continue to embrace immigrants, will continue to embrace uh, diversity and people from all parts of the world, not just certain places where they look like you if you're, you know, a white person of privilege in the United States. Um, I have mentioned on the podcast and elsewhere the the final speech that Ronald Reagan gave, and he's someone who is not in my political party, whom I didn't agree with in a lot of things, and I was a young man at the time, but the one thing that there used to be a much better consensus on, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal, was, you know, what the Statue of Liberty stands for, and that is welcoming people, huddled masses, poor, who have a chance to grow and build and contribute to America. And the final speech that Ronald Reagan gave from the Oval Office, I believe, I think on his last day in office, was an homage to immigrants and saying very movingly, um, even though he's one at one place on the political spectrum, which is hard to imagine now, given what the Republican Party has become under Trump, that we can never become a country that closes its doors to people from other parts of the world, because that's what makes us great. So I, I feel very, very good about America. I feel very, very good about Americans. I feel very, very good about the immigrant experience. I feel very good about the good faith that people have towards immigrants. And you see that in protests, and you see that in lawyers going to the border, trying to reunite separated children from their, from their uh, people who are separated from their mothers and fathers. I think that Stephen Miller, who's an advisor to the president, and the president himself are doing a disservice, I think, to the, to the tradition of America, and to the contribution of, of immigrants. And I speak out against it, and I think it's a problem but I have great confidence in America as a whole.
0: And how ironic that it was Reagan who said such pro-immigrant words, given that Donald Trump has aped his campaign slogan, Make America Great Again.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think Ronald Reagan, his other speeches that he gave, and you can disagree with many, many things, and his immigration policies weren't perfect either. But in the lead-up to his re-election, he talked about Make America Great Again, and he talked about immigration, being open to immigration, and he won 49 states. So it's possible even in the Republican Party. I know times have changed, but it's possible to be open and warm and embracing and receptive and still win elections. And so I think, A, it's odious how Donald Trump talks about immigrants, not just about the press and other things. Uh, but I also think it's unnecessary.
0: Preet Bharara, a pleasure and a privilege. Thank
1: you so much. This week's podcast was
2: presented by Matthew Stadlin and produced by me, that's Krista Doolu Preet Barara's Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment and the Rule of Law is out now. Visit our website, howtoacademy.com, to find more analysis of Trump's America and the New World Order. Thanks for listening.